everyone. I'm Gary Knoll. Always a pleasure to be able to spend a, an empowering hour with you. Today we begin with a study from Washington University School of Medicine, and it talks about how breast health is linked to a diet with peanut butter and nuts. What they're saying is, by eating more peanut butter, of course it would be organic raw peanut butter in my opinion, uh, during their school years, girls could be improving their breast health in adulthood. This was published in the Journal of Breast Cancer Research and Treatment. And that's important. Now, mind you, we're not asking anyone to take any single food to excess. That doesn't work. But this is a part of a normal, healthy diet. To add raw peanut butter, maybe to your smoothie in the morning, a big tablespoon, and that would be beneficial. In fact, they said the girls 9 to 15 who ate peanut butter and nuts twice a week were 39% less likely to develop benign breast disease by the age of 30 than girls who did not. Now, I would suggest we do a little better than that. I suggest that we eat about 2 ounces to 3 ounces of nuts a day, every day of the week. You can have them in a bowl of still-cut oatmeal or millet. Uh, you can mix it into stir-fries. Or, of course, you can have it in a smoothie. You can have the nuts themselves, but always get raw and always, uh, with the nut butters, uh, take about a tablespoon each day. That's what I found makes a big difference. And benign breast disease includes lumps or tender spots that turn out to be fibrous tissue and or cysts. And one of the things that I found in the 1970s when doing a study on why we had so many people with cysts in their breast is because of caffeine. My doctoral dissertation was in caffeinism. And what I was finding is that if it was invented today, caffeine in all likelihood would be banned. It's highly anabolic and it is definitely associated with cysts and fibroids, so I would get it out of the diet altogether. And yet it's common today, either in soft drinks or in coffees, or let's say in college students who are staying up late at night, they're drinking the espressos, and that's a lot of caffeine. And that can lead to hyperplasia, an overgrowth of the cells that lie in the ducts and the glandular breast tissue. Although benign breast disease is not cancerous, it can raise the risk of developing breast cancer later in life. So, something to consider, all right? Something simple, easy. And uh, by the way, a peanut is not actually a nut. It's in the pulse family, where their beans, lentils, soy, and corn uh, are also linked to reducing the risk of benign uh, breast disease. A lot of people have anxiety and understandably so. According to the University of Wisconsin, many of us have experienced the calming effect of loving smells like jasmine or lavender or honeysuckle. But a new study has shown that anxiety can cause the brain to transform neutral odors to negative ones, creating a vicious cycle whereby stress is heightened. What's this mean? What they did is they did some magnetic resonance imaging, or MRIs, 
to look at the brains of dozens volunteers who were shown disturbing pictures and texts in order to induce anxiety. The researchers reported that after experiencing anxiety and stress, the human subjects assigned certain smells they had previously labeled as neutral, uh, and uh, now they were negative. So, in lay language, after anxiety, neutral smells become clearly negative. And, uh, and sometimes that can then lead to more anxiety. So, be very conscious of that. All right? And so therefore, what do you do? We can't eliminate smells. Smells are everywhere. And smells are very important. I love the smell of fresh cut grass. Reminds me of when I was a kid. You know, and, and someone in the summertime would cut the grass and you smell it in the air, the chlorophyll. It's very calming. How about the smelling of something baking, like fresh baked bread or uh, cinnamon buns? Or We all experience these as kids, and this sticks with us. All right? So try to bring into your home the type of smells that allow you to reflect back. Cinnamon is a big one, all right? And uh, around Thanksgiving, it's pumpkins, the smell of pumpkin pies. So these are important, but aromatherapy is also important. And there are dozens of different smells. You can go into one of the apothecaries that sell uh, these, and you can sample different scents. Some help you sleep. Lavender. Just take two drops of lavender and just put it on your pillow, and it'll help you sleep. Sandalwood, very calming, right? And uh, chrysanthemums, also good. Now, according to a new study from the Copenhagen University Hospital and Eras University, which is in Denmark, anti-acid use is correlated to dementia. All right? Researchers at Copenhagen University and Harris University have looked into the potential association between proton pump inhibitors, or PPIs, commonly used anti-acid medications to suppress stomach acid production and increase dementia risk. And you have a substantial increase. They had almost 2 million people in this study when they found out you increase your risk of dementia if you use these. So why not simply Look at what causes acid reflux. How about the number one cause? Caffeine. Coffee. All right? Get rid of that. That cuts GERD. How about also about how miscombining foods. What do I mean? I wrote a book on this a long time ago called The Food Combining Handbook. And what I found was that there are certain foods when eaten together enhance digestion. Digestion is more complete. There's no negative side effects. And no bloating, gas, distension, constipation. And the foods that you can eat together would be things like salads, your starchy vegetables, whole grains, beans, and lentils and pulses, and, uh, and seaweed. You can have any combination of those, and it's good digestion. What's not good digestion is things that have a lot of protein, that takes longer digestion, and especially fats, that takes a lot longer digestion. And one of the things that our body doesn't know how to deal with is when we have 
miscombined foods. For example, if you have simple sugars, let's say you have a dessert, and in the dessert is sugar. Most time it is. Well, sugar doesn't require digestion. It's a monosaccharide. It goes right, right into the system. But it can't if other foods are consumed with it. So let's say you're having a piece of cheesecake. Just one example. The cheesecake has got fat. That takes a long time to digest. The sugar takes no time. And it gets something that takes hours and something that takes minutes. What happens is you can't separate out in the stomach and say, okay, you go through now. You go, we'll open up this flap, the pyloric sphincter, and put that food into the intestine. It doesn't work that way. So what happens is the sugar begins to ferment, causing gas. And then you get that bloating sensation. So try to have anything that is sweet by itself. There's a, like a notion with watermelon. Eat it alone or leave it alone. Because if you eat watermelon with something that has fat in it or protein, you're going to have digestive problems. So if you're going to eat meat, then eat meat by itself. Don't have something that is a quick digestion. Slow digestion, eat together. Faster digestion, eat together. Don't combine them. And yet we combine everything. And we overeat. We're overstuffing our stomach. The body can't handle that. So what happens is at a certain point, it dumps. So only partially digested food gets thrown into the intestine. Well, the intestine doesn't have teeth. You're not going to have the same digestion in the intestine you have in the stomach. You don't have a hydrochloric acid and pepsin and uh, amylase and sucrase. You don't have these enzymes in the intestine you have in the stomach. So then you end up with overeating and undernourished because the food is not absorbed. can't be. I wish you could look inside of an intestine at the part, the duogenum, these millions of little tiny follicles, and that's where the nutrients are absorbed to go into the bloodstream, go into the liver, get recombined, and then out to the cells where they're utilized. Smaller meals, slower eating, no cold liquids with a meal, none. Have your liquids before meal or an hour after a meal, not during, unless the meal is a soup, and then have warm liquids. That enhances digestion. In fact, when you wake up in the morning, have a glass of water, warm, not cold. Squeeze the juice of a lemon into it. That enhances the slight alkalinity that your body needs. Helps with pain in the joints also, and swelling in the feet. Something simple. All right, and so just to help you with that. And also, whether you're walking or using a treadmill or biking, all of that enhances cognitive function if you're over the age of 40. University of Eastern Finland, University of Edinburgh, University of Zurich, they all work together on this. And they found that completing a six-kilometer Nordic walk 
uh, was really good for improving immediate cognition. So if you want to have a better brain, greater memory, quicker reaction, according to the article published in the British Medical Journal, Open Sports and Exercise Medicine, then do your aerobic exercise in the morning. It has immediate effects, and that's important. Better cognition and better related biological responses. And by the way, by the time you're 40, you're already way over middle age. All right? So that's important. And I'll just share one more study with you. And this study is uh, from Aris University in Denmark. The immune system benefits when you're out in nature, on a farm, in the country, by the beach. And it's especially good for people who suffer from hypersensitivities and allergies. And one of the hypersensitivities that I'm seeing now, more than ever before, is hypersensitivity to electromagnetic frequencies. Your cell phone, your laptop, your computer. I'm sitting in my studio at my animal sanctuary down in Florida. And I'm sitting close to the camera. The camera doesn't throw off the electromagnetic pulse. And anything that's hardwired will not throw off the pulse that is uh, wireless. Wireless is the problem. And I'm about right now three feet from the camera. But I've got a monitor over here, a monitor there, and uh, about four feet away. Also, I put screens in that around the tower, where the power comes from, because that throws off electromagnetic frequencies. And you combine, you should, every home in America, every home, no exception, an apartment as well, should have a Gauss meter, small device, and it shows you safe range and problematic range and danger range. And without exception, people who suffer from these allergies and the two pulses end up having, well, they lose weight, they can't eat, their immune system is overstimulated, they end up with infections, and yet they go to a doctor and the doctor does basic exams, can't find anything wrong, then thinks the person's suffering from some form of mental problem. No, it's real. Electromagnetic pollution is real. 5G is one of the problems. How do you eliminate the dangers of 5G? Make it all wired. But they want it wireless. And now you're putting these smart meters on the back of apartment buildings, on the back of the houses. Don't allow it. They put one on mine. I came home from a tour, saw it, had them take it off. No. No, they're very dangerous. Very, very dangerous. How dangerous? I read an article on it. It's probably the most definitive article ever written on the dangers of 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5G. And now they're going to 6 and 7G. They want you to live in a smart city where it's nothing but wireless. The Internet of all things, controlled by artificial intelligence. Everything in every room is wireless so they can see everything you're doing, communicate with you. For example, the new refrigerators. You look at the refrigerator and you see a screen. And on the screen, it tells you what's in your refrigerator, whether it's healthy or unhealthy, whether you should have it or not. 
And also now in these smart cities, you wear a little chip. So if they tell you you've had too much sodium or you're allergic to something, it'll tell you right on that screen. And then every room you're in, everything in that room is, again, wired. And these are highly population-dense environments. Way too many people into a 15-minute city, meaning you can walk anywhere you need to go in 24 hours in 15 minutes. Well, they think it's just great. But they control every single thing in your life. They control your bank account. You'll have no cash because nothing accepts cash. You don't even have to have a card in the new cities. You just walk right in. The chip that's in your hand between the web will immediately read everything about you. And there are certain things you won't be able to buy. And some things you can. And so all this is planned out. It's already there right now in California. They're building a city like this. And the engineer, one of the engineers, was so concerned that they... uh, when public became a whistleblower. I'll play the clip. They've already done it in in England. They're doing it in about 15 different cities. And everything is connected and controlled by artificial intelligence. They don't have police. Instead, they have robotic dogs that patrol the streets and will recognize you. And uh, every single place. There's not an inch in that whole city that's not monitored 24-7. And yet there'll be people lining up for it. Non-stop. There'll be more people running into this city than there are places for them to be. What does that tell you about mass psychosis and becoming obedient and lazy at the same time? So that's the latest on health and healing. We're going to take a break. And by the way, uh, last evening on the Progressive Commentary Hour, we had more people tune in to listen to the show than any program we've ever done. I mean, a huge crowd. And we over when our bandwidth. So for people who couldn't get on, go today with Chris Hedges. You won't want to miss that. Download from the Progressive Commentary Hour, the Chris Hedges Show. Yesterday. We're going to take a break. Come right back. Please stay with us. We are in the midst of a crisis, not just a crisis around the world with various conflicts, civil unrest, and terrorist activity, but a crisis of what to believe, who to believe, what information is accurate, what is just propaganda. And we already know from the Vietnam War, from 9-11, from the uh, Iraq, war, um, Libya, Afghanistan, virtually everything we're told by the government, we must challenge because it's biased. We also don't know how much of our decision-making is based upon financial interests of the military-industrial complex. Remember, war is good for profit, and they need war, in which case when there's a war, no one ever questions non-bid contracts, how much money is spent. Just go in and get the materials and fight. So, currently in Israel, there is just massive destruction of Gaza. Where are those people supposed to live? They'll have no furniture, no clothing, no food. They'll have nothing. 
that are even in a hospital now. And you're talking about not a dozen people, you're talking about almost two million people can be affected. This is not good. This is not the way you solve a problem. By killing everyone, destroying everything, and that's the mindset of a lot of people. Understandable, you're filled with rage. So we're going to share something with you now. It's an individual. I don't know anything about what he does, except he's laying forth a hypothesis. That's all. It's just his idea. You can agree or disagree with any part of it. There are things he says that I agree with. Things he says I challenge. But we haven't heard this before. You've never heard this. And I think it's important we at least examine it to see, is it plausible? Have we been played? Have we been manipulated? Your call. You listen, watch, and then call us with your opinion. 888-874-488. If we have time, we'll go to your go to your call. Now to the clip. If you could address them, what would be your message to the Israeli people? You know, uh, in the Muslim and the Arab world, we sort of have been taking it as a truism, you know, for years, that the United States basically serves Israel, that America is controlled by Zionists, and that the U.S. government will do anything, uh, no matter how much it costs, to save and protect Israel. I think there's a lot of Israelis who probably think that way too. But an objective, uh, rational assessment uh, of the situation would paint a very different picture. I think Israelis need to recognize, if they don't already, uh, that the United States is not your savior. It's your worst enemy. The U.S., whether you know it or not, and whether Muslims understand it or not, is actually treating Israel the same way that they treat everyone else, with complete contempt. I mean, look, uh, they are supporting Benjamin Netanyahu, who is the most unpopular, the most despised, the most corrupt, the most incompetent, the most psychopathic, delusional, uh, and despotic ruler that Israel has ever had. And he's responsible for both prolonging and worsening the conflict with the Palestinians. Netanyahu has made a career uh, on diverting attention away from the uh, internal domestic concerns that actually matter uh, to Israeli citizens, that matter the most to Israeli citizens, by endlessly talking about security and the supposed threat uh, that Israel faces. And of course, uh, the domestic problems in Israel just get worse. And the uh, conflict and the security situation actually just gets worse. And America loves it. They don't care about Israel's domestic issues. They don't care about the uh, socioeconomic issues, the socioeconomic concerns that Israelis have, the high cost of living, the disparity between rich and poor. Uh, they don't care about corruption uh, in Israeli society and so on. And these are the, uh, predominantly, these are the issues that matter the most to Israeli citizens, to American vote, uh, to uh, Israeli voters. But as far as America is concerned, the only thing that matters is continuing the strife and conflict. That's all they care about. They don't care about the welfare and the stability of Israel, the safety of Israeli citizens. You see, Israeli citizens want to treat Israel like an actual country, and they expect it to behave like an actual country. And they think that uh, their lives and their concerns should matter like they would in an actual country. 
But to the United States, Israel is a policy instrument. So the Israeli population doesn't matter to them. And what matters to the Israeli population doesn't matter to them. The relationship with the United States uh, has been incredibly detrimental to Israel, despite what everyone thinks. It has prevented Israel from becoming a normal society. Now, part of that is driven by the uh, by diaspora Jews in the U.S., who, like most uh, diaspora communities, are generally far more radical and ideological than their people back home. And this diaspora community in the West, particularly in the United States, uh, makes a huge amount of money exploiting uh, Jewish emotional attachment to Israel, you know, getting them to fund pro-Israeli lobbies and so on, which mostly just uh, makes a handful of American Jews very rich. But it's mostly driven by U.S. policy interests and the utility of Israel uh, as a vehicle for an endless flow of cash to American defense companies and as an uh, sort of offshore research and development hub for the Pentagon. The U.S. does not want uh, and has never wanted for Israel to be at peace with their neighbors. They've never wanted Israel to integrate into the region. That's not Israel's function as far as America is concerned. And it doesn't matter to them that this is the only way for Israel to ever actually become uh, a normal society. It doesn't matter if this is uh, in the interests of the Israeli population or not. They don't care. They're using you. They're using you, the Israelis. They're exploiting you. The Americans, the West, are using you. And it's absolutely against the interests of your people. Obviously, the only way for Israel to ever progress as a society is to dislodge themselves from the United States, from the West, and to integrate properly into the region. Until they do that, uh, none of their domestic issues will ever be resolved. They'll never even be addressed. Until they do that, uh, they will never be allowed to do anything but uh, be a policy tool of the U.S. and lose both their lives and their souls in the process. I mean, they're making you do things that are against your beliefs as Jews. They're making you do things that are against your own humanity. They're pushing you to do things that make the world see you as monsters. And more specifically, uh, you're being seen as monsters by the people who are in that part of the world where you are. Properly, uh, Israel should be a global south country. It should be a Middle Eastern country. And it should uh, share the values and the priorities of the global south and the Middle East. But because it was uh, a Western colonialist project from the beginning, and because it continues to operate exclusively as a colonialist project, it is seen as, it is perceived as, and it sees itself as a Western nation. And you're never going to be able to be a normal country uh, going forward like that. The only real way forward uh, is a one-state solution. Incorporate all of the occupied territories and all of the inhabitants of those territories into one country with equal citizenship rights. Yes, that will mean that uh, Israel will have a Palestinian majority and it will no longer be a so-called Jewish state, but it can become a normal, healthy society. I mean, if Zionism means upholding the right of Jews to live in Palestine, well, no one ever said they didn't have that right. No one ever had a problem with that, certainly not the Muslims. But if Zionism means 
uh, ethnic Jewish supremacy, well, I mean, what civilized person would endorse something like that in the 21st century? There were always Jews in Palestine during the Muslim Empire, and there were Jews in Palestine when the Zionists came, and the Zionists fought against them. But if you want your country to ever be normal, then you're going to have to go back in history and learn from the history of those uh, Palestinian Jews who knew how to get along with their neighbors and who lived peacefully with the Arabs, who lived peacefully with the Palestinians, the Jews who rightly saw uh, the Zionists as colonizers and as people who disrupted their society because those same Zionists and that same ideology is disrupting your society today. The Israelis can't possibly like being the way their country is now. There's no way they like that. They're human beings. They hate Netanyahu. And most of them blame the government for what's going on right now, and rightly so. But look how opposed that is to the American narrative. You know, look at how at odds the American narrative is from the way Israelis themselves feel, the Western narrative. You need to stop letting America talk for you. They're destroying you. The perspective of the average Israeli uh, is diametrically the opposite of what the Americans are saying. I mean, look at those kids at the rave when the Hamas attack happened. And remember that uh, military service is compulsory in Israel. So that means that all of those kids at that rave were IDF soldiers at one point. And th all those kids have military training. But those aren't soldiers. I mean, even the active soldiers of the IDF aren't soldiers. The IDF of 2023 is not the IDF of 1956 or 1967 or even of the, of the 1980s. These people don't want to be warriors. They just want to live their lives. But America won't let them. I mean, look at the Israelis on TikTok or Instagram. What do you think they would rather be doing with their lives? Do you think they have it in them to, uh, that they're so committed to Zionism that they want to dedicate their lives to harsh, uh, stoic drills and training all day, self-sacrifice, discipline, and so on, in order to make Israel a warrior nation, why well, they'd rather be in Dubai. You know it and I know it. If they had a choice between uh, the path that Netanyahu and the United States wants for them, which is the path of endless strife and conflict and bloodshed, if they had a choice between that or uh, following the path of a one-state solution, that would flood that country with Gulf investment, Gulf money, and would allow them to just basically lay on the beach all day smoking hashish. What do you think they would prefer? No, Israel has to detach itself from the U.S. They need to start looking uh, to the BRICS nations for diplomatic resolutions and solve these problems together with the Global South. And they need to send this message uh, to the diaspora and try to de-radicalize those people and stop the influx of crazy settler extremists to their country. That's a destabilizing force in your society. I mean, just like always, the Muslims, the Arabs, uh, are giving Jews a way out of Western exploitation and violence because that's all the West is doing, if you think about it, if you think it through. You can't possibly be foolish enough not to see that. I mean, we've always heard about how smart Jewish people are. So surely you can see that the West is just uh, throwing you into violence and suffering and chaos. They're just using you. But the Arabs, the Muslims, genuinely want peace and stability, but with justice and fairness. You believe in justice and fairness, don't you? 
You want peace and stability, don't you? Well, the only way that's ever going to be brought about uh, is when you disentangle yourselves from the United States, honestly. I think you should enact a law in Israel, in fact, against dual citizenship. Don't let anyone be a citizen of Israel while still holding a passport for another country. Then you can weed out, you know, who's really invested in your society and who isn't. I think at least 20% of Israelis, last time I checked, I think around 20% of Israelis uh, hold dual citizenship. And about half of those only live in Israel part-time. They're seasonal Zionists. And these are most likely going to be, uh, you know, the settler types, who are basically sort of a, a Jewish ISIS, a Jewish Daesh. You don't want people like that in your society. I mean, it will also be from, from the, the part-time seasonal Zionists, you also have the business people who have divided interests. You need to weed those people out. They're destabilizing. And you certainly shouldn't be allowed to uh, serve in the government if you have dual citizenship. How can you, how can, how can you be sure uh, which country's interests they're serving? Particularly if they're uh, American Israelis, if they hold dual citizenship of Israel and, and the United States, which country are they serving? I mean, how many of these people in the government or elsewhere, but especially in the government, how many of these people would be willing to sacrifice their U.S. passport for Israel? Not many. I promise you that. Well, that shows divided loyalty. And that's at least one of the reasons why there's so much corruption in your government. Interesting, isn't it? That this is something that we're not talking about. That we're the ones controlling everything and we're using Israel. Well, we never know the truth till decades after something has happened. And then we think, oh, okay, lessons learned. No, lessons not learned. But why is it that we have so many people willing to be so obedient to whatever any authority figure says, whether it's the authority of a school teacher? Read this. But this is not honest history. Read that. My parents wouldn't want me to read that. That's, that's not, you know, for you to teach me. That's for my parents to teach me. I'm only eight years old, and you're wanting me to know about oral and anal sex? No, no thank you. But we don't. We're very pliable. We've been pliable for our entire existence. Someone trying to influence us to their opinion. When we accept their opinion, we also relegate our power of decision to them. Do you really trust politicians? Do you trust people in the military-industrial complex, the scientific complex, the medical complex? Where are there honest, objective people who are sharing insights that really help us? Look around you. Look at any city. Look at, the, look at what we've done concerning the environmental crisis. Nothing. All euphemisms. So how do we become a nation so willing to stop all critical thinking using good common sense and our own judgment. Some do, the majority don't. Here is something I started on a previous program, only got into a few minutes, but it's really important. It's about mass psychosis. This better explains why good people do foolish things. Let's take a look. While there are many potential triggers of madness, such as an excessive use of drugs or alcohol, brain injuries, and other illnesses, these physical causes will not concern us here. Our concern is with psychological, or what are called psychogenic triggers, as these are the most common culprits of the mass psychosis. 
The most prevalent psychogenic cause of a psychosis is a flood of negative emotions, such as fear or anxiety, that drives an individual into a state of panic. When in a state of panic, an individual will naturally seek relief, as it is too mentally and physically draining to subsist in this hyper-emotional state. While escaping from the state of panic can be accomplished through adaptive means, such as facing up to and defeating the fear-generating threat, another way to escape is to undergo a psychotic break. A psychotic break is not a descent into a state of greater disorder, as many believe, but a reordering of one's experiential world, which blends fact and fiction, or delusions and reality, in a way that helps end the feelings of panic. Silvano Arietti, one of the 20th century's foremost authorities on schizophrenia, explains the psychogenic steps that lead to madness. Firstly, there is the phase of panic, when the patient starts to perceive things in a different way, is frightened on account of it, appears confused, and does not know how to explain the strange things that are happening. The next step is what Ariadne calls a phase of psychotic insight, whereby an individual succeeds in putting things together by devising a pathological way of seeing reality which allows him to explain his abnormal experiences. The phenomenon is called insight because the patient finally sees meaning and relations in his experiences. But the insight is psychotic because it is based on delusions, not on adaptive and life-promoting ways of relating to whatever threats precipitated the panic. The delusions, in other words, allow the panic-stricken individual to escape from the flood of negative emotions, but at the cost of losing touch with reality, and for this reason, Arietti says that a psychotic break can be viewed as an abnormal way of dealing with an extreme state of anxiety. If a panic-triggering flood of negative emotions in a weak and vulnerable individual can trigger a psychotic break, then a mass psychosis can result when a population of weak and vulnerable individuals is driven into a state of panic by threats real, imagined, or fabricated. But as delusions can take many forms, and as madness can manifest in countless ways, the specific manner in which a mass psychosis unfolds will differ based on the historical and cultural context of the infected society. But in the modern era, it is the mass psychosis of totalitarianism that appears to be the greatest threat. Totalitarianism, writes Arthur Verslewis, is the modern phenomenon of total centralized state power, coupled with the obliteration of individual human rights. In the totalized state, there are those in power, and there are the objectified masses, the victims. In a totalitarian society, the population is divided into two groups, the rulers and the ruled, and both groups undergo a pathological transformation. The rulers are elevated to an almost godlike status, which is diametrically opposed to our nature as imperfect beings who are easily corrupted by power. The masses, on the other hand, are transformed into the dependent subjects of these pathological rulers and take on a psychologically regressed and childlike status. Hannah Arendt, one of the 20th century's preeminent scholars of this form of rule, called totalitarianism an attempted transformation of human nature itself. But this attempted transformation only turns sound minds into sick minds, for as the Dutch medical doctor who studied the mental effects of living under totalitarianism wrote, 
There is in fact much that is comparable between the strange reactions of the citizens of totalitarianism and their culture as a whole, on the one hand, and the reactions of the sick schizophrenic on the other. The social transformation that unfolds under totalitarianism is built upon and sustained by delusions. For only deluded men and women regress to the childlike status of obedient and submissive subjects and hand over complete control of their lives to politicians and bureaucrats. Only a deluded ruling class will believe that they possess the knowledge, wisdom, and acumen to completely control society in a top-down manner. And only when under the spell of delusions would anyone believe that a society composed of power-hungry rulers on the one hand and a psychologically regressed population on the other will lead to anything other than mass suffering and social ruin. But what triggers the psychosis of totalitarianism? As was explored in the previous video of this series, the mass psychosis of totalitarianism begins in a society's ruling class. The individuals that make up this class, be it politicians, bureaucrats, or crony capitalists, are very prone to delusions that augment their power, and no delusion is more attractive to the power-hungry than the delusion that they can and should control and dominate a society. When a ruling elite becomes possessed by a political ideology of this sort, be it communism, fascism, or technocracy, the next step is to induce a population into accepting their rule by infecting them with the mass psychosis of totalitarianism. This psychosis has been induced many times throughout history, and as Mirlu explains, it is simply a question of reorganizing and manipulating collective feelings in the proper way. The general method by which the members of a ruling elite can accomplish this end is called menticide, with the etymology of this word being a killing of the mind, and as Mirlu further explains, menticide is an old crime against the human mind and spirit, but systematized anew. It is an organized system of psychological intervention and judicial perversion through which a ruling class can imprint their own opportunistic thoughts upon the minds of those they plan to use and destroy. Priming a population for the crime of menticide begins with the sowing of fear. When an individual is flooded with negative emotions such as fear or anxiety, he or she is very susceptible to a descent into the delusions of madness. Threats real, imagined, or fabricated can be used to sow fear, but a particularly effective technique is to use waves of terror. Under this technique, the sowing of fear is staggered with periods of calm, but each of these periods of calm is followed by the manufacturing of an even more intense spell of fear. And on and on, the process goes. Or as Mirlu writes, each wave of terrorizing creates its effects more easily after a breathing spell than the one that preceded it because people are still disturbed by their previous experience. Morality becomes lower and lower, and the psychological effects of each new propaganda campaign become stronger. It reaches a public already softened up. While fear primes a population for menticide, the use of propaganda to spread misinformation and to promote confusion with respect to the source of the threats and the nature of the crisis, helps to break down the minds of the masses. Government officials, and their lackeys in the media, can use contradictory reports, nonsensical information, and even blatant lies, 
as the more they confuse, the less capable will a population be to cope with the crisis and diminish their fear in a rational and adaptive manner. Confusion, in other words, heightens the susceptibility of a dissent into the delusions of totalitarianism. Or as Mirlu explains, Logic can be met with logic, while illogic cannot. It confuses those who think straight. The big lie and monotonously repeated nonsense have more emotional appeal than logic and reason. While the people are still searching for a reasonable counterargument to the first lie, the totalitarians can assault them with another. Never before in history have such effective means existed to manipulate a society into the psychosis of totalitarianism. Smartphones and social media, television and the internet, all in conjunction with algorithms that quickly censor the flow of unwanted information, allow those in power to easily assault the minds of the masses. What is more, the addictive nature of these technologies means that many people voluntarily subject themselves to the ruling elite's propaganda with a remarkable frequency. Modern technology, explains Mirlu, teaches man to take for granted the world he is looking at. He takes no time to retreat and reflect. Technology lures him on, dropping him into its wheels and movements. No rest, no meditation, no reflection, no conversation. The senses are continually overloaded with stimuli. Man doesn't learn to question his world anymore. The screen offers him answers, ready-made. But there is a further step the would-be totalitarian rulers can take to increase the chance of a totalitarian psychosis. And this is to isolate the victims and to disrupt normal social interactions. When alone and lacking normal interactions with friends, family, and co-workers, an individual becomes far more susceptible to delusions for several reasons. Firstly, they lose contact with the corrective force of the positive example. For not everyone is tricked by the machinations of the ruling elite, and the individuals who see through the propaganda can help free others from the menticidal assault. If, however, isolation is enforced, the power of these positive examples greatly diminishes. But another reason that isolation increases the efficacy of menticide is because, like many other species, human beings are more easily conditioned into new patterns of thought and behavior when isolated. Or as Mirlu explains with regards to the physiologist Ivan Pavlov's work on behavioral conditioning, Pavlov made another significant discovery. The conditioned reflex could be developed most easily in a quiet laboratory with a minimum of disturbing stimuli. Every trainer of animals knows this from his own experience. Isolation and the patient repetition of stimuli are required to tame wild animals. The totalitarians have followed this rule. They know that they can condition their political victims most quickly if they are kept in isolation. Alone, confused, and battered by waves of terror, a population under an attack of menticide descends into a hopeless and vulnerable state. The never-ending stream of propaganda turns minds once capable of rational thought into playhouses of irrational forces. And with chaos swirling around them and within them, the masses crave a return to a more ordered world. The would-be totalitarians can now take the decisive step. They can offer a way out and a return to order in a world that seems to be moving rapidly in the opposite direction. But all this comes at a price. 
the masses must give up their freedom and cede control of all aspects of life to the ruling elite. They must relinquish their capacity to be self-reliant individuals who are responsible for their own lives and become submissive and obedient subjects. The masses, in other words, must descend into the delusions of the totalitarian psychosis. The totalitarian systems of the 20th century represent a kind of collective psychosis. Whether gradually or suddenly, reason and common human decency are no longer possible in such a system. There is only a pervasive atmosphere of terror and a projection of the enemy, imagined to be in our midst. Thus society turns on itself, urged on by the ruling authorities. But the order of a totalitarian world is a pathological order. By enforcing a strict conformity and requiring a blind obedience from the citizenry, totalitarianism rids the world of the spontaneity that produces many of life's joys and the creativity that drives society forward. The total control of this form of rule, no matter under what name it is branded, be it rule by scientists and doctors, politicians and bureaucrats, or a dictator, breeds stagnation, destruction, and death on a mass scale. And so perhaps the most important question facing the world is how can totalitarianism be prevented? And if a society has been induced into the early stages of this mass psychosis, can the effects be reversed? While one can never be sure of the prognosis of a collective madness, there are steps that can be taken to help effectuate a cure. This task, however, necessitates many different approaches from many different people. For just as the menticidal attack is multi-pronged, so too must be the counter-attack. According to Carl Jung, for those of us who wish to help return sanity to an insane world, the first step is to bring order to our own minds and to live in a way that provides inspiration for others to follow. It is not for nothing that our age cries out for the Redeemer personality, for the one who can emancipate himself from the grip of the collective psychosis and save at least his own soul, who lights a beacon of hope for others, proclaiming that here is at least one man who has succeeded in extricating himself from the fatal identity with the group psyche. But assuming one is living in a manner free of the grip of the psychosis, there are further steps that can be taken. Information that counters the propaganda should be spread as far and as wide as possible, for the truth is more powerful than the fiction and falsities peddled by the would-be totalitarian rulers, and so their success is in part contingent on their ability to censor the free flow of information. Another tactic is to use humor and ridicule to delegitimize the ruling elite. Or as Mirlu explains, we must learn to treat the demagogue and aspirant dictators in our midst with the weapon of ridicule. The demagogue himself is almost incapable of humor of any sort, and if we treat him with humor, he will begin to collapse. A tactic recommended by Vaclav Havel, a political dissident under Soviet communist rule, who later became president of Czechoslovakia, is the construction of what are called parallel structures. A parallel structure is any form of organization, business, institution, technology, or creative pursuit that exists physically within a totalitarian society, yet morally outside of it. In communist Czechoslovakia, 
Havel noted that these parallel structures were more effective at combating totalitarianism than political action. Furthermore, when enough parallel structures are created, a second culture, or parallel society, spontaneously forms and functions as an enclave of freedom and sanity within a totalitarian world. Or as Havel explains in his book, The Power of the Powerless. What else are parallel structures than an area where a different life can be lived? A life that is in harmony with its own aims, and which in turn structures itself in harmony with those aims. What else are those initial attempts at social self-organization than the efforts of a certain part of society to rid itself of the self-sustaining aspects of totalitarianism, and thus, to extricate itself radically from its involvement in the totalitarian system? But above all else, what is required to prevent a full descent into the madness of totalitarianism is action by as many people as possible. For just as the ruling elite do not sit around passively, but instead take deliberate steps to increase their power, so too an active and concerted effort must be made to move the world back in the direction of freedom. This can be an immense challenge in a world falling prey to the delusions of totalitarianism. But as Thomas Paine noted, Tyranny, like hell, is not easily conquered. Yet we have this consolation with us, that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. Again, there's so much good information packed into that. I hope you took notes or remembered the things that were important. And now to close out our program, just want to give you a little heads up. About every one or two or three years, I discontinue a product. I don't discontinue because it's bad or doesn't work. I discontinue because there's not enough sales to justify ordering $100,000 uh, and tying that up when that should go towards better selling products. The products are good. I invent them myself. I create all the formulas, always based upon the best science I can use. For example, red stuff, green stuff, power berry bless, supremacy, supreme health formula of the super antioxidants. Um, these are phenomenal. Cardio stuff, right? Immune stuff. Very popular. And rightly so. But then sometimes there's a product that just is not popular because people probably think, oh, I don't need it. Good. So then I discontinue it. That saves an inventory. And also, I have to order large amounts. Because of COVID, they've increased the minimum order. Where I used to be able to buy 500 bottles, now I gotta buy 2,000 bottles. Well, it's gonna to be too long. I won't be able to sell it. So I've taken one product that my inventory person says, these are not moving. So we're gonna to have to discontinue it. The product I'm going to discontinue this year is um, something that uh, a lot of people found that they just don't need. That's memory stuff. All right, so it's a great product for people who need it. But evidently, a lot of people don't, which is also good. So along with a good diet and exercise and uh, the different products, they're all meant to enhance your health. So if you've been using memory stuff and it really benefits you, then I suggest you get what we have remaining, or at least stock up. When I was going to discontinue my shampoo, best shampoo in America, but 
very few people wanted it. And so as a result, I just sold what I could, and I brought the rest down here, and I use it myself. And uh, so stock up on memory stuff. We only have about 400 bottles left. When it's gone, it's not coming back. All right? How do you get it? Well, you can call Neil in the vitamin closet or visit him from Monday to Saturday, noon to 8. He's at 35 West 35th Street on the 12th floor. Or call him at 646-926-5430. Or you can just order it yourself right online. Or you can call this number in Sandy or Diane or Neil can help you with it. Call 877-627-5065. 877-627-5065. And say, I'd like, you know, um, memory stuff. One, two, three, four, five cans. Whatever you want until it's gone. All right, because it's going to go. Probably sell out of it in the next two months. So then it's gone. If you benefit from it, then you'll want to know. Get enough to last you. Okay? That's it for today. I want to thank you all for taking your time to watch. We streamed all of today's show and hope you found it of interest. I didn't take calls, but we had some calls, but I will deal with that on tomorrow's program. Have a nice day, everyone.